You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you, and so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me as we will continue to explore the many characters of the Passion. And I say that in that Peter was one of those characters, and uh, he was a funny character. Of course, he loved the Lord greatly, and then he denied the Lord uh, three times. Uh, And I think we all can relate to Peter's journey, uh, and of course, sometimes our guilt in abandoning the Lord. Uh, But again, there was that beautiful restoration, and uh, good St. Peter Uh, led the church uh, and its uh, humble beginnings, and of course laid down his life uh, for the Lord and his kingdom. And uh, so great example there. So Bishop Sheen's going to uh, give us a great reflection on Peter, and it's from his Catholic Hour uh, days as Monsignor Sheen, uh, recording back from 1946. So I hope you will enjoy that. And after we give that reflection, we will follow it up with a talk entitled The Devil. And uh, we are in a spiritual battle, and we do fight against Satan with God's help. And so uh, we need as much help as we can get. So Bishop Sheen will do that for us. So again, sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Friends, the most interesting drama in all the world is the drama of a human soul. Though there are many phases to these dramas, perhaps the most interesting of them all is the psychology of a fall and a resurrection. More concretely, how do some souls lose their faith? And by what steps do they later on recover it? To answer such questions, we look to the story of the Apostle Peter, whose fall sacred scripture traces through five stages. By studying them, it is possible to judge our own spiritual condition. These five stages are, first, neglect of prayer, second, substitution of action for prayer, third, lukewarmness, fourth, love of ease, and finally, human respect. First, the neglect of prayer. No soul ever fell away from God without first giving up prayer. Prayer is that which establishes contact with divine power and opens the invisible resources of heaven. 
That night that our blessed Lord went out under the light of a full moon into the garden of Gethsemane to crimson the olive roots with his own blood for the redemption of men, he turned to his disciples and said, Watch ye and pray that ye enter not into temptation. Withdrawing from his disciples about as far as a man could throw a stone, how significant a way to measure distance. The night a man goes out to his death, he prays to his heavenly Father. When our blessed Lord came back the third time to visit his disciples, he found them asleep. A woman will watch not one hour or one night, but day after day and night after night in the presence of a peril threatening her child. But Peter slept. If he could sleep on such an occasion, it was due to the fact that he had no adequate conception of the crises through which our blessed Lord was passing, no consciousness of the tragedy that was already upon them. And finding him asleep, our blessed Lord spoke to Peter and said, What? Could you not watch one hour with me? Incidentally, it is that hour a day we ask from every Jew, Protestant, and Catholic for the peace of the world. And the next step downward is substitution of action for prayer. Most souls who give up praying still feel the necessity of doing something for God and his church, and they turn to the solace of activity. Instead of going from prayer to action, they neglect the prayer and become busy about many things. It is so easy to think we are doing God's work when we are only in motion and being fussy. Peter was no exception. and the turmoil of the arrest of our blessed Lord which followed, Peter, who had already been armed with two swords, allows his usual impetuosity to get the better of him, slashing out rather recklessly at the armed gang. What he strikes is not a soldier at all, but a slave of the high priest. As a swordsman, Peter was a good fisherman. The slave steps aside and the blow aimed at the crown of his head merely cuts off his ear. Our blessed Lord restored the ear by a miracle and then turned to Peter and said, Put up again thy sword into its place. For all that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Divinity has no need of it, our Lord could summon twelve legions of angels to his aid if he wished. The church must never fight with the weapons of the world. But Peter, having given up the habit of prayer, substitutes violence toward others. All tact is lost as devotion to a cause becomes zeal without knowledge. Far better it would be to take a few hours off our active life and spend it in communion with God than to be busy about many things while neglecting the one thing that is necessary for peace and happiness. No such activity is a substitute for watching and praying an hour. And then the third step downward is lukewarmness. Experience proves that religious activity without prayer soon degenerates into indifference. 
At this stage, souls become lukewarm. They believe one can be too religious, too zealous, or spend too much time in church. A few hours later, our blessed Lord is led before his judges. As that sad procession moves on, in the unutterable loneliness where the God-man freely subjects himself to the evil darts of men, the gospel records, and Peter followed him afar off. He had given up prayer, then action, now he keeps his distance. Only his eyes remained on the master. How quickly the insincerity of action without prayer proves itself. He who was brave enough to draw a sword a few hours before, now strays on behind. Christ, who was once the dominating passion of our life, now becomes incidental in religion. We still linger on as from force of habit after the footsteps of the master. But we are out of range of both his eyes and his voice. It is in such moments that souls say, God has forgotten me, when the truth is that it is not God who leaves us. It is we who stray on behind. And then the fourth stage is loss, love of ease. Once the divine fades in life, the physical begins to assert itself. The excessive dedication to luxury and refinement is always an indication of the inner poverty of the spirit. When the treasure is within, there's no need of those outer treasures which rust consume, moths eat, and thieves break through and steal. But when the inner beauty is gone, we need luxuries to clothe our nakedness. It was only natural, therefore, to find that in the next stage of his declension, Peter should be satisfying his body. He did not go into the courtroom. He remained outside with the servants. And in the expressive language of sacred scripture, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were sitting about it, Peter was in the midst of them. He sat by the fire that the enemies of Christ had built. And as the blaze of that fire lighted up the face of Peter, it was possible for bystanders and those who came into the court to see his face. At that very moment when our blessed Lord was in court taking an oath, proclaiming his divinity, Peter was taking an oath too. But not to reaffirm as he did at Caesarea Philippi that Christ was the son of the living God, but rather to deny it. Three times bystanders spoke to him. The first two were saucy maidens. And the last, a man who said to him, Surely thou art one of them. Thou art a Galilean. For even thy speech doth discover thee. And Peter became angry at these repeated affirmations. And with an atavistic throwback to his fisherman days, when his nets became tangled in Galilean waters, he cursed and he swore and said, I know not this man. 
human respect had won. How often others know what we ought to do, even when we have forgotten. How touchy are those consciences that have abandoned God. They are sensitive even to the memory that they once had the faith. Many a time I have heard such souls say, Do not talk to me about it. I want to forget it. I tell you, you can never forget it. Even your speech betrays that you have been with a Galilean. And if these be the steps away from the faith, what are the steps back? They are threefold. Disillusionment, response to God's grace, and finally amendment and sorrow. Disillusionment. Since all sin is pride, it follows that the first condition of conversion is humility. The ego must decrease. God must increase. This humiliation must come sometimes by a profound realization that sin does not pay, that it never keeps its promises, and that just as a violation of the laws of health produce sickness, so the violation of the laws of God produce unhappiness. And this is signified in Peter's case by the fulfillment of a prophecy made by our Lord to Peter the night of the Last Supper. Having warned his apostles that they would be scandalized in him that night, Peter boasted, saying, I will lay down my life for thee. And our Lord answered, Wilt thou lay down thy life for me? Amen, amen, I say to thee. The cock shall not crow till thou deny me thrice. A few hours later, at that very moment, that Peter for the third time cursed and swore that he knew not Christ, there came through the halls of the outer chambers of Caiaphas's court the clear and unmistakable crowing of a cock. Even nature is on God's side. We may abuse it in our sin, but in the end, it will abuse us. How right was Thompson when he characterized nature as having a traitorous trueness, a loyal deceit, and fickleness to me, in loyalty to him. The crowing of the cock was such a childish thing. But God can use the most insignificant things in the world as a channel of his grace, the cry of a child. A word over the radio. Please God, one of mine. The song of a sparrow. He will even press into the business of conversion the crowing of a cock and the dawning of the morn. A soul can come to God by a series of disgusts. And the next step in the return to God after the awakening of conscience is on God's part. As soon as we empty ourselves or are disillusioned, God comes to fill the void. As St. Luke tells us, the Lord turning looked on Peter. God does not desert us, though we desert him. He turns once we know that we are sinners. God never gives us up. 
The very word used here to describe the look of our Lord is exactly the same word the sacred scripture uses the first time our Lord met Peter. The meaning being that he looked through Peter. Peter is recalled to the sweet beginnings of his grace and vocation. Judas received the lips to recall him to fellowship. Peter received a look with eyes that see us not as our neighbors see us, not as we see ourselves, but as we really are. They were the eyes of a wounded friend, the look of a hurt Christ. And the final stage is amendment and sorrow. The scripture records Peter's amendment or purgation in the simple words, and going forth, all the trappings of sin, all the ill-gotten goods, human respect, all these are trampled underfoot as he goes out. But this leaving of the tabernacles of sin would not be enough were there not sorrow. Some leave sin only because they find it disgusting. There is no real conversion until that sin is related to the person of God. A sacred scripture says, against thee have I sinned, O Lord. Not against space-time, nor the cosmical universe, nor the powers beyond given a sorrow that regrets offending God because he's all good and deserving of our love, then you have salvation. Fittingly, therefore, the scriptures say that Peter, going out, wept bitterly. His heart was broken into a thousand pieces, and his eyes that looked into the eyes of Christ now turn into fountains. Moses struck a rock, and water came forth. Christ looked on a rock and tears came forth. Tradition has it that Peter wept so much for his sins that his cheeks were furrowed with penitential streams. And upon those tears the face of the light of the world rises and through them comes the rainbow of hope assuring to all souls that never again will a heart be destroyed by a flood of sin so long as it turns to him who is the son of salvation and the Lord of the universe. No wonder then our divine Lord knows all souls in their inner being, chose as the head of his church, not John who never denied, and who alone of all the apostles was present on the hill of Calvary, but rather chose Peter who fell and then rose again, who sinned and was then forgiven in order that the church might understand through time something of the weakness of sin and bear to the millions of souls its gospel of hope and the assurance of divine mercy. Fittingly then, when Peter came to the end of his lease on life, he asked not to be crucified as our Lord was with his head upright. Peter asked to be crucified with his head downward to the earth. Our Lord had called him the rock of his church. And as the rock, he was laid where he should be, deep in the roots of creation. And on that very spot where the man of courage was crucified upside down, with the stumbling feet up toward heaven, there now arises the greatest dome that was ever thrown against the vault of heaven's view, the dome of the Basilica of St. Peter in Rome. 
And around that dome in giant letters of gold, we read the words our Lord spoke to Peter at Caesarea Philippi, Thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Many a time have I knelt under that dome and its inscription. Many a time, too, have I looked down below its main altar to the tomb where is buried that rock that made Rome eternal because a fisherman came to live there. No one, I suppose, has ever bent a suppliant knee to that first vicar of Christ's church to whom our Lord said, that a sinner should be forgiven not seventy times, but seventy times seven, without thanking our Lord for his church, who can look on us as he looked on Peter, and whisper to us in hope, as our sins are forgiven, if you had never sinned, you never could call Christ. Savior. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I hope you enjoyed that reflection back from 1946, the Catholic Hour, which then featured Monsignor Sheen. And uh, just imagine listening to that every week on Sunday. What a great way to finish your week and to set you on a path uh, to take on the world, take on the devil, with God's help, of course, and his assistance. Uh, but those words of encouragement, and so I hope you will take those words to heart today. And so I'd like to now present our second reflection, and it's a reflection entitled, The Devil. So may I present to you once again the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Now because we, are so, we get so much of our theology from the press, I thought perhaps you might be interested in hearing about the devil from a sound philosophical and theological point of view. I'm going to describe to you the devil first from the psychiatric point of view, and secondly from the biblical. First the psychiatric. It is interesting that as we drop things in the church, the world begins to pick them up and distorts them. Now we, for example, the nuns drop the long habits, the girls put on maxi coats. We stop saying the beads, hippies put the beads around their neck. And as theologians dropped the demonic, the psychiatrist picked it up. Rollo May of Rockefeller Institute has several chapters in his work on psychiatry on the diabolic. What is the diabolic from the purely psychiatric point of view? 
Dr. Rollo may analyzes the word diabolic. It comes from the Greek words dia and balain. Dia balain is to tear apart, rend asunder. Anything, therefore, that breaks pattern, that destroys unity, that corrupts gestalt, produces discord, that is the diabolic. Now, there has been a great increase of the diabolic. Notice, for example, the discord in the church. The discord in religious communities. The discord among the laity as regards the church. Discords in the clergy. All these are manifestations of a spirit of the diabolic that, is, that surrounds us. Now this psychiatrist analyzes the way in which the diabolic works. And he mentions three. First, love of nudity. Secondly, violence, aggressiveness. Thirdly, split personalities, no inner peace, disjointed minds. First, a love of nudity. I asked a chaplain some years ago in, a, in an institution if he had manifest any manifestations of the diabolic in an institution where he was and said, yes, sometimes when I bring the Blessed Sacrament in, the people strip as I pass the room. But we leave that aside. That is not important. I would rather refer you to the gospel. Now, our blessed Lord one time went into the land of the Gerizines or Gadarenes. It depends upon which translation of the scriptures you are using. And he found in this land a young man possessed by the devil. The gospel mentions three characteristics of this young man. First, he was nude. Secondly, he was violent and aggressive. They could not even keep him in chains. And thirdly, his mind was split, schizophrenic. Our Lord said to him, what is your name? He said, my name is Legion. Now, a legion in his time meant 6,000 soldiers in the Roman army. See already, he's a person and yet he's legion, 6,000 others. My name is Legion, for we are many. See, the personality is no longer unified. I, Legion, we, many. Now, this psychiatrist does not ever correlate his three manifestations of the diabolic with this young man in the gospel. I am doing that. 
because I could not help but notice the similarity between the two. So from just a superficial point of view, the diabolic disrupts. And whenever you have a great manifestation of the Spirit, you always get the devil working. When, for example, Moses in the Old Testament worked miracles against Pharaoh, Pharaoh's agents simulated a few miracles. When the Holy Spirit came upon the early church, Pentecost, there was the persecution of Stephen. We had a Vatican Council. The blessing of the Spirit upon the church. And we have immediately the manifestation of the evil spirit. So I just leave you with this characteristic note of the diabolic from the psychiatric point of view. The breakup of unity, the breakup of families, breakup of corporations, breakup of religious communities, breakup of the oneness of Christ. That is one analysis of the demonic. The second, the biblical. I take you now to the 16th chapter of Matthew. Our blessed Lord had asked the most important question that could ever be asked. Who do men say that I am? Eventually, Peter gave the right answer. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then our blessed Lord announced that he was going up to Jerusalem to be delivered over to the Gentiles, to be spat upon, crucified, and eventually would rise from the dead. Peter was willing to have a divine Christ, but he was not willing to have a suffering one. Well, go back now to the beginning of our Lord's public life, and I will reveal to you again the three temptations that were presented to our Lord by Satan. And we will learn from this discussion that the essence of the satanic or the diabolic is the hatred of the cross of Christ. Now, let that dwell in your minds. What is the satanic from the biblical point of view? It is the contempt of the cross of Christ. It's anti-cross. As a proof now, and that is the meaning, we go back to the temptation. Our blessed Lord is on the mountain, and Satan offers him three short cuts from the cross. You want mankind to follow you? I will tell you the way, said Satan. You do not need a cross. I will give you three short cuts. The first... See those stones down there? They look like little loaves of bread, don't they? 
you haven't eaten in 40 days. The first shortcut, permissiveness. Do whatever you feel like doing. The second temptation. The cross will never win mankind because mankind loves wonders, surprises, the startling, the marvelous, anything that will make them say, oh, they'll forget the marvels in a week, then repeat another marvel, fly to the moon. Throw yourself from the steeple and be unhurt. That's a marvel. Do that and the crowds will follow you. But you need no cross. And the final temptation, which will be the temptation of the church in the next 100 years? And we have the dim beginnings of it now. Satan says theology is politics. Why bother with theology? God. The mystery of redemption. The only thing that matters is politics. And holding, as it were, the shiny globe of the world in his hand, Satan said, All these kingdoms are mine. Am I? And I will give them to you. If falling down you will adore me. Was Satan for once in his life telling the truth? Are all the kingdoms his? But in any case, it was the third temptation of our blessed Lord, not to be concerned with the divine, but to be concerned only with the social and political order. Now come back to our Lord calling Peter Satan. The reason he did was because Satan tempted our Lord from the cross And that is precisely what Peter was trying to do when he said to him, this shall not be. We will recognize your divinity, but we'll not recognize the cross. And from that time on to this, this is the biblical essence of the satanic. We have it, the spirit of it in the church. Notice how much we've given up mortification, self-denial, discipline in schools, in seminaries, the attempted disruption, books, for example, that will only describe the evil, real or imaginary, of people. And they are in some of our schools, as you well know. 
This is the disruptive element, the diabolic. But the decline of the spirit of discipline is a hatred of the cross. The ascetic or the disciplinary character of Christianity has moved to the totalitarian states. It is in China. It is in Russia. There, there's discipline, self-denial, commitment to a common purpose, but without a cross and therefore with complete destruction of human liberty. How much will this diabolic and the satanic and contempt of the cross continue to manifest itself? Well, we do not know for sure that we are in the age of the demonic. But there's a passage in St. Paul which at first seems very difficult. May I read it to you and then I will explain it. It is in Second Theologians, chapter 2, verse 7. Now remember, Paul was writing this well within the first 60 years of Christianity. Already the secret power of wickedness is at work. Secret. Secret only for the present. In other words, we cannot see the manifestation of evil and the demonic. Secret only for the present until the restrainer disappears from the scene. We do not know precisely who is the restrainer. Maybe Christ, maybe the Holy Spirit, maybe an influx of grace, maybe the holiness of the church. But in any case, the evil is secret until... God says, all right, now evil, you will have your day, your hour. God has his day, evil has his hour. And then continuing, and then he will be revealed, Satan. That wicked man whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth and annihilate by the radiance of his coming. But the coming of that wicked man is the work of Satan. It will be attended by powerful signs and miracles and lies and all deception that sinfulness can impose on those who are doomed to destruction. Even in the last book of scripture we get the hint that when the Antichrist comes there will be a simulated death and resurrection in order to deceive. So at present we cannot see the demonic at work. But let me give you a hint as to how Christ works and how Satan works. Now if you understand what I'm about to tell you, it will help you very much in dealing with the evil of the world and in overcoming it. 
I'm going to describe how our Lord appears before we sin and how Satan appears before we sin. Then I will describe how our Lord appears after we sin and how Satan appears after we sin. First of all, how does our Lord appear just before we sin, as when we are about to sin? Well, he appears as thou shalt not. He appears as the Lord on the cross. He bars the way. He says, my flesh was crucified, your flesh be crucified too. Go not this way. And so he stands in front of us. Oh, we're not free. We cannot do all we want to do. Christ is there. But how does Satan say or talk when we are about to sin? Oh, don't be sick. We don't believe those things anymore. Times have changed. Are you still a virgin? You mean you've never had a smoke of marijuana? Listen, everybody's doing it. Don't pay attention to those doctors who tell you that it'll hurt your brain cells. You've got to live. You have to be yourself. You haven't committed adultery? Everybody's doing it now. These views of strict morality were all right a hundred years ago or five hundred years ago. But this is a new world. I gotta be me, I gotta be free. That's the way the devil talks. He's on our side. Before we sin, Christ seems to be the accuser. Before we sin, the devil is our defender. He's on our side. The side of our sex, the side of our pride, the side of our greed. He takes our part. After we sin, then the roles are reversed. Then Christ becomes the defender and the devil the accuser. And the devil will say, All right, now you've had your dope. Now you're hurt. Don't come to me, I can't help you. You might just as well give up. Sure, you've lost your virginity. Now what difference does it make? You might just as well go on. Sure, you've stolen. You haven't been caught, but you will be. Or you're about to be caught. And so the devil fills us with despair. He filled the heart of Judas with despair. 
Judas could have gone to the Savior. And the Savior would have forgiven him. But Judas took a rope and walked the frozen ground before the frosty trees. And every knot in every tree seemed to him like an eye. And every branch of every tree seemed to be an accusing finger. Traitor. There was nothing for him to do in his despair but suicide. And that is one of the reasons why suicide is on the increase in our civilization. Despair. The devil got us. In one of the novels of Dostoevsky, Raskolnikov, who was a very evil man, said to a girl whom he loved, he said, Sonia, you know what's going to happen to you. You're either going to jump off a bridge or you're going mad or you will cut your throat. But that was not the way it happened. Because Sonia picked up the Gospel of John and she began reading the resurrection of Lazarus and she said, I can find new life in Christ. Which brings me to the way that our Lord acts after the sin. Now he is our defender. He said, come to me. All ye who labor. If your sins are as scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. And if they are as red as crimson, they shall be made white as wool. Poor, piteous, futile thing. Why should any set thee love apart? For how hast thou merited? Of all man's clotted clay, the dingiest clot. Alas, thou knowest not how little worthy of any love thou art. For whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee? Save me. Save only me. All that thy child's mistakes fancies is lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. This is the language of the Savior after we sin. Now I've told you 
what the diabolic is. The disruption of unity. The satanic, the contempt of the cross, mortification and self-denial. And therefore of Christ himself. There are 10,000 times 10,000 roads down which any of you may travel for a lifetime. And it makes no difference which road you travel. At the end of all of these roads, you are going to see two faces. Either the merciful face of Christ, or the horrible face of Satan. And either one at the end of your life will say, Mine. Mine. Play not therefore with that which is evil. Otherwise, we are caught. And I will tell you the three powerful weapons against Satan. First, the holy name of Jesus. That is a name that Satan cannot stand. Because in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in the heavens, on the earth and under the earth. The second, the blood of Christ. The invocation of the blood of Christ. I may give you a sermon on that. But we are saved by the blood of Christ. And therefore in temptation, call upon his blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And thirdly, devotion to our Blessed Mother. For at the beginning, in the book of Genesis, it was the seed of a woman that would crush the seed of Satan. We are armed with three, these three weapons. The Holy Name, the blood of Christ, and the Blessed Mother. And when you think of the diabolic and the demonic and the satanic, do not be led off the track by what you may hear through the media of communications. The demonic very simply is the anti-cross, the anti-disciplined life. The Antichrist. That's the satanic. Nothing else. You'll never go wrong if you understand that. And he bids you love that cross. Whenever there's silence round about me by day or night, I am startled by a cry. It came down from the cross the first time I heard it. 
And I went out and searched and found a man in the throes of crucifixion. And I said, I will take you down. And I tried to take the nails out of his feet. But he said, let them be. For I cannot be taken down until every man, woman, and child come together to take me down. But I said, what can I do? I cannot bear your cry. And he said, go into the world and tell every man that you meet, there is a man on the cross. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you once again for joining me for this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I love that talk about the devil, and we have to know that the devil is real. Uh, But there are three beautiful ways to fight the devil, and I'll repeat what Bishop Sheen said. The first is calling on the holy name of Jesus, the name above all other names, the name that will bow down. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So always remember to call out the holy name of Jesus. The second is the blood of Christ. Let us always call upon the blood of Christ to cover us and redeem us. And the third is the Blessed Mother. May we always pray for her intercession. And so may I end this program with that beautiful prayer to Our Lady as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again for joining me. Please bring a friend next week. And until that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.
You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.